you'd like to open up your Bibles uh, to Ruth chapter 1, we'll be in a lot of different places, but we can, we'll be in Ruth for a little while. So you just start, the, start your Bible and just keep working your way in. It's like the seventh book in there. So again, as I mentioned last week, uh, this sermon series, uh, God is working his plan. It's, it's different than kind of just going through 1 Timothy chapter by chapter, verse by verse. It's a little bit more um, topical, uh, so to speak. But as we're looking at these different themes, they're not ones that we're like, oh yeah, we talked about that last week, carry on. Like last week we looked at God keeps his promise. God keeps his promises. So, so really I'm thinking all these themes, you could write that down in the back of your Bible, God keeps his promise or God keeps his promises, and spend the rest of your life filling in underneath the evidence of that. What we're looking at today, God brings light in darkness. It's a huge theme we find throughout the whole Bible, so you could write that in the back of your Bible. God brings light in darkness. Spend the rest of your life giving examples of how that is true. Uh, Next week, we'll be looking at God redeems broken humanity. Right? So it's not like a one-off type word there. It's something that we want to see the rest of our lives uh, by, by God doing that work in us and through us. And then on Christmas Eve, God is with us. And so these are, these are huge themes that I, I pray can encourage our hearts right now, but will take with us into the days, months, years ahead. And so even when I say God is working his plan, in one sense, I'm talking about these messages looking back in the Old Testament. Uh, last week I talked about, right after the, the fall of Adam and Eve, sin entered in, and God made this statement to the devil. And he said, hey, someone from Eve, a descendant from her, is going to come, and he's going to crush your head. <laughs> that's, that's the way I like to describe it. Someone's going to step on the snake. There's going to be a descendant of Eve. He's going to make things right. And so God's always working his plan in the Old Testament. That's coming about. But as we look in the Old Testament, we see God working his plan. I also want us to see today, God is at work always. He's working his plan. His purposes are happening. So today, though, we're going to be looking at God brings light in darkness, a huge theme. We're going to be looking at the book of Ruth for this. Um, And if you want to stand with me, we're going to read Ruth one to five. And since I'm in so many places, I'm like, where do we start? We'll start here in Ruth. Ruth one to five. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, they were uh, apathophites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And both uh, Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. May God bless his word to our souls this morning. You can have a seat. We will continue on in the story of Ruth here in a moment. 
But again, the, the big theme I want us to see is that God brings light and darkness. So you can keep your finger there in Ruth and follow with me. I'm just going to read just from the genealogy there in Matthew. Or you can just hear it. So genealogy in Matthew, that's how Matthew's gospel begins as his list of names. And in verse 5, it says this, in Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And so we're just looking at those names. We got Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth in Jesus' genealogy. And then we're taking it and going back to like, what is their story? How did that come about? They're in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So it's obviously quite important. But as we're going back and looking at the story of of Ruth, we're going to be looking through the story and grabbing that one truth. I want you to see clearly God brings light and darkness. And then as we grab that truth, I want to just press it with other truths from Scripture and then really apply that to our own lives and our own time. So that is what we're going to be doing. That's what we're going to be looking at today. So we see there genealogy of Matthew, those names listed, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. If you'll turn back to the book of Ruth with me, we'll be looking at at her story here this morning. If you look again just at the first verse, it says, in the days when the judges ruled, in the days when the judges ruled, I really want you to see, in order to see the light coming from the story of Ruth, I want you first to see how dark it was in the days of the judges. I want you to just understand what was happening in the background surrounding the book of Ruth. So I want you first to just tell you about the darkness of the time of Judges. The book of Judges uh, it took place after Joshua, uh, or sorry, so Moses, he, he led the people out of Egypt, and then they're, they're wandering around the prom, or not the promised land, running around the desert for 40 years, and then he dies, and then Joshua takes the people into the promised land, the book of Joshua, the book of Judges is after Joshua dies, and the people are already in the promised land, and what we see is that they turn away from God, they turn to idols. They turn to themselves. Famine comes on the land. Other people come in the land and kind of fight and destroy the people of God. And in time, they cry out to God. He raises up judges. They're rescued. And it's repeated over and over and over again. It's kind of a, it's a sin cycle, I like to say. Uh, judges chapter 2, just describing the darkness here. Judges chapter 2 describes this cycle quite clearly. Judges 2 verse 11 And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, these other idols. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth, these other idols. So the Lord, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Verse 19, and whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And you see this repeated 
over and over again in the book of Judges, this cycle of sin. And how the book of Judges ends, I just want to bring that to your attention. Kind of the last three stories of the book of Judges is just like summarizing how bad, how terrible it was. So Judges 17, you can look there with me. Judges 17, it speaks of, there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver's with me, I took it. He's like, I, I stole from you, mom. I stole the money. And you uttered a curse about it? Yeah, I'm the one who took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. It's really confusing. He's like, I stole from you. She's like, yeah, may you be blessed by the Lord. And what does she do? And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I'll restore it to you. What does she do with the money? She takes some of the money and she's like, we're going to build an idol. Like, it's such a confusing time that they're living in. And if we, would, we keep reading, so Micah goes and he gets these household gods and he, he, he says to one of his sons, hey, you're going to be a priest. You're going to lead us in worship. And verse 6 really clarifies the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is what's happening. This is the refrain that's happening. Well, then Micah sees this one priest who's from a Levite from Bethlehem. This is highlighted at the end. And he says, hey, why don't you come and be my priest? I'll give you uh, 10 pieces of clothing and some money. And, uh, and, and so he goes and serves, serves Micah. Everyone did whatever they wanted. So that's just another, a sign of how bad it was. And then chapter 18, what happens, the people from the tribe of Dan, they come and they visit Micah's house. They see his idols. They see the priests there. They return with everyone and they, they rob the idols and they rob the priests and say, you're coming with us. It's, again, verse 18, verse 1, in those days there was no king in Israel. And then Judges 19, which we won't even go into uh, how bad and how terrible it gets, but basically there's this sexual immorality. The, the tribe of Benjamin is almost wiped out because of their sin. And again, there's a refrain. If you look at the end of the book of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I can't paint how, actually, how dark it is spiritually within the time of Judges. I just hope you can see it. Everyone was doing whatever they wanted with whoever they wanted. There was no fear of God. They were rebelling against his commands. They were worshiping idols. Their sexual immorality. It was a very dark time. Yet God brings light in darkness. So I just want you to see that backdrop because that's what the book of Ruth takes place in those times. And so we'll again, look at the story of Ruth with us. So again, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In those days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, a famine in the land showed that the people were being unfaithful to God. That's one of the ways God would get their attention. Thinking of the blessings and the curses, Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26. Part of the curses to Israel, if you don't follow me, God's like, you're not going to be able to grow anything in the land. There's going to be famine. And the famine's meant for them to repent and to turn back and seek the Lord. 
So there's a famine in the land, a man of Bethlehem and Judah. Interesting, Bethlehem, the name means house of bread. So they're, they're leaving the place where God's supposed to be doing. They're leaving the house of bread. And where are they going? They're going to the country of Moab, the country of their enemies, looking for food there. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of the wife, Naomi, and the names of the two sons were Malon and Chilion. They're Aphrodites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. The book of Ruth is, a, is an amazing story. I hope in the future to return here and to really pull out a lot more of the details that we're going through very quickly here this morning. But everything that happens just in those first couple of verses, it just, it's, a, it's a powerful opening. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she's left with her two sons. So they go to a foreign land. She becomes a widow. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died. So the, that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So all of a sudden, from the beginning to this point, all of a sudden you have three women, three widows in a foreign land. And, and you know, there wasn't any type of government subsidy to care after the women. Like, widows could actually be in a really hard place with no one to provide for them. But we know, uh, as it says all throughout the scriptures, Psalm 68, 5 says this, the father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God has a heart for those who are downtrodden, for those who are in a poor situation. He cares for the poor. He cares for the widows. And so we see this unfold in the story. In verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. They heard there's now food again in the promised land, so they're going to return. And then Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, Hey, I'm, I'm going back. You guys stay here. You know, there's, there's no future uh, men to marry. Don't wait. Just go back. So Orpah goes back, but then Ruth stays. Ruth's loyalty is amazing. In verse 15, as Naomi's trying to like get her to go back to her people, Naomi says this, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. From where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. It's amazing the loyalty of a Gentile, a non-Jew. It's so exemplary. In a time in the book of Judges, you have all these bad examples, yet it's the Moabite woman who is the good example, the, the faithful one. So they return to Bethlehem. Naomi is broken. She's bitter. She's empty. The amazing thing about the book of Ruth is at the end of every chapter, it introduces what's going to happen in the next one. Like, it's such a perfect uh, book of, of Hebrew storytelling. Verse 22 said, Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. 
And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So they're just setting up more of the story. They're, they don't have any food, so you go into the field and you fall behind, behind the laborers. And actually, it, God already made provision for this in Deuteronomy uh, 20, 24, verse 19. It's written this to the people of Israel, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, that be the, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the, more the Lord God may bless you in all the works of your hands. So even as they were working the field, if stuff fell off to the side, hey, just leave it, keep going, that's for the people who don't have enough food. So there's provision already for that to happen, so she's gonna go to the field, she's gonna work it, and look at verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who's of the clan of Elimelech. I love that. She just happened to go into Boaz's field. Do things just happen? Just coincidence? It's just luck? Does your understanding of God allow that? Do you believe in providence? In divine providence. That's what we see here in the story. It's not so clearly spoken of, but our God works and acts and moves things and people according to his purpose. Our God is at work. We see him working here. He's at work in our time as well. So we have, Ruth happens to work in Boaz's field. And in time, Boaz comes in and they start this conversation back and forth. In verse 11, and Boaz says to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people you did not know before. Look at verse 12 with me. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz speaks this blessing to her. Like you, you're trusting in the Lord. May he protect you. May he keep you. Again, there's this stand-up man, Boaz, speaking this blessing to this Moabite woman. It's an, uh, it's an amazing thing. And so uh, Ruth ends up returning home, and she's talking to Naomi. And then Naomi says this in verse 20. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, speaking of Boaz, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And what, that, what that's talking about is a kinsman redeemer. Again, there was actually provision made within the law of God that if someone died and say they, they, they're going to lose their land, then a close relative could go and buy the land and keep it within the family name. Or if someone was married to someone and, and, and so say the, the husband died, then a close relative could come and take that woman as their wife and continue to perpetuate the family name. So Boaz happens to be within the family. He's a redeemer. He's someone who could actually help them along the way. It's an amazing thing. And so the story continues in verse 23 of Ruth, and she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. And then in time, when we get to chapter 3, it says, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Say, so Naomi has a plan. She's like, hey, Boaz is one of our redeemers. Uh, you're a widow. I'm a widow. 
Maybe he will redeem you, redeem us. And so she comes up with this plan. I guess they're, they're working uh, late at night, and she says, go and present yourself to him. And she follows this plan and goes in verse 7 and softly and uncovers Buzz's feet and lies down at the end of his feet. Verse 8, at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. I don't know if any of you sleep at night with your feet covered. Maybe he had cold feet. He woke up. But he's like, oh, he's surprised. Buzz sees Ruth there at the, at the end of where he's sleeping. And verse 9, he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So there's, many, there's much confusion in what's happening here. I don't think there's anything sexual happening here. Boaz and Ruth are both stand up in their character. And so I think what's happening is that Ruth is just showing uh, her willingness for Boaz, like to be married, because Ruth was younger. Boaz was a little bit older. In fact, Leon Morris says this, 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 this symbol of saying, hey, spread your garment over me, it's actually used Talking about marriage in Ezekiel 16, verse 8, it was used in the Arab world to signify marriage. So that's kind of what's, what's being asked of. Ruth's just kind of putting herself out there. A widow who just doesn't have anything going for her, knowing that this guy is the redeemer. And so they have this conversation there. And Boaz says this, verse 10. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after your young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you that what, all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. As in there's someone, like, it goes whoever's closest in the family line kind of gets the first opportunity to redeem. There's someone closer than Boaz. Boaz, then it says, hey, first thing in the morning, we're going to go and get this figured out and, and see either he'll redeem you or I will redeem you. And so you think how happy Ruth must have felt leaving that place. And so we see in chapter 4, uh, Boaz goes to town and he gathers the guy who's closer in line to redeem it. He gathers a bunch of people to witness this deal that's going on. And then Boaz says, hey, you know there's a field Naomi's field, Elimelech, would you like to redeem it? And these guys like, of course, he want, he's like, oh, extra land? Yes. He's like, yes, I will redeem it. And then and Boaz like, actually, and you also get Ruth. <laughs> and you have to perpetuate the name of her fallen husband. And he's like, oh, actually, I changed my mind. I don't want to redeem it. So, so that's what the authorized version says. I'm, I'm joking. I'm just paraphrasing here quickly. So there's this conversation going on between them. I'll just pick up in chapter 4, verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer, this is the other guy, said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. So think like we have what? You shake hands. Do we, some people still do that? Shake, hey, my handshake is it. Well, if we went back a little, you got to take your shoe off. If you really want to take it back in tradition, if you want to make a deal, you got to pass when your shoe. So next time you buy something off Kijiji, see if, you, see if that works still. So there's a, that's this conversation. He's like, hey, I'm not going to do it. You're going to do it. So he takes his shoe off and passes it to him. And it says this in verse 10. 
or verse 9 as well. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses to this day. I've bought from the hand of, I've bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. The name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses of this day. This transaction is made. He's the redeemer. He's going to watch out for her. And the way the story ends uh, is so encouraging. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, means servant of God. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Like that's what I, I love the importance of this story. Like why is Ruth here in the Bible? Well, one thing, again, it happened in the time of Judges. <laughs> and I'm telling you, if you even read that last story in the time of Judges, like it was dark, it was depraved, like no one's seeking after God. Yet in the midst of that darkness, God brings light. And we see how he brings light. Do you see the light shining through this story? God's working through a Moabite, a foreigner. He still has godly people in Boaz. He looked after strangers and widows. God is still working his plan and purposes. This promise made in Genesis 3.15 that someone from the descendant of Eve, one of her seeds, is going to come. He's going to crush the head of the snake. And all throughout the Old Testament, God is preserving his people to bring about the Messiah. And for whatever reason, the time of judges, all this chaos is happening. God's like, actually, through Ruth the Moabite and through Boaz, I'm going to bring the Messiah. Because from them comes King David. I love it. God brings light and darkness. I hope you can see in this picture, I, I don't know if you can see how dark the time of Judges is, but this clear light shining within this story. I want to take that truth out and really press that a little bit more. God brings light in the darkness. I'm talking about spiritually. So that now I just want to focus our time, our attention now on the, the light of Christ. Think of the, the prophecy that's made about the Messiah to come in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, the second part of verse 1. Isaiah speaks of this. In the latter time, he, that be God, has, has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, right? Speaking of Jesus' ministry to come. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. All throughout the Bible, there's this analogy of light and darkness, particularly talking about the first coming of Christ, his ministry. He is bringing a light. Think about the time that Jesus came under Roman rule, domination. In a sense, God had been quiet for 400 years. The last time, spoken to the Old Testament, Malachi. And then after that, there was no more prophets. It was just silent. People watching and waiting into that, Jesus Christ come. If you want to turn to the Gospel of John, we'll be looking a little bit of what he has to say about the first coming of Christ. 
In John's gospel, he really uses very significantly light and darkness. John 1, verse 4, thinking about the light of Christ, speaking of Jesus. John 1, verse 4, John writes this, in him, speaking of Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Speaking as of Jesus coming, the darkness will not overcome the light of Christ. Verse 8, he was, I'm sorry, verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Even well-known verses, John chapter 3, verse 16 Maybe you've memorized it, you've heard it so many times. I'm going to read the scripture that comes after it as well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And hear this, verse 19, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. You just think criminals primarily do things at night. We want to have maybe motion detectors, lights that come on to scare them away doing evil things in in darkness. In verse 21, though, but whoever does what is true comes to the light. So let me be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So there's this great contrast in John's gospel, but point to Jesus says he is the light. Even actually in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So what a, what a time, the Christmas season, to remember when the light of the world came to earth. Like, what a perfect time to celebrate it. I don't know about you, but I love December 21st, because after that, it starts to get just a little bit lighter, a little bit brighter. But what a time when it's the darkest time to remember that the light of the world came to earth. A question, are you walking in Christ's light, has it shone on you? And going to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, continuing this analogy, thinking of the light of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul writes this, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's what happens. People spiritually, there's, they cannot see. They cannot see the light of Christ. I would, I would just say, can you see? Can you see the light of Christ? Is it shining on you? Are your eyes opened? If we're sharing with people, they're like, man, they're just not getting it. We, need, should, we should pray. Lord, open their eyes. Allow them to see the light of Christ. May it shine upon them. But for those who have believed, verse 6, Paul writes this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Speaking of Genesis. 
For God who has said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. For anyone who has, who has seen that light and responded, not turned away to darkness, but like, yes, okay, I'm coming. And his light exposes your heart, exposes your life. And what can you do? You can just repent and put your faith and trust in him. If you want to walk into the light, you cannot come into the light with everything hidden and darkness. No, you have to deal with what the light exposes, right? And we confess our sins and we believe and we trust in him. And that's how we continue to walk in the light as he is in the light. God brings light to darkness. Anyone here who has come into the new birth, you knew you were in the darkness. You were in the domain of the devil, but God gave you faith. You saw the light of Christ shine. You saw your need. You believed in him, and his light entered in, and darkness fled. Oh, the light of Christ. How amazing that is that God brings light in darkness. Now, friends, I want to draw our attention to think on the cross. The darkest time in human history, and yet the greatest light. What a paradox. If you want to turn to the Gospel of Luke, I'll be looking at Luke 23, looking at a few various verses. Forgive me as I'm putting you here, there, and everywhere within the New Testament. I hope this will encourage your heart. Think of Jesus as he lived a perfect life. How he healed many, he did miracles, he walked on water, he raised the dead, he fed 5,000, but yet he was born to die. Right, even at the Christmas story, even as the, the shepherds came and looked over the God in the flesh, there was the shadow already from the cross, for he came to die, he came to die for our sins. And so just looking at, at Luke 23, just thinking of the story, uh, sorry, Luke 22. Just thinking of the story as Jesus, he's with his followers at night, and he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And then what happens? Judas goes and gets this crowd, and, and, they, and they gather together. They need torches, because it happens at night. This is when it happens, and they go, and they want to confront Jesus. They want to arrest him. In Luke's gospel, in Luke 22, verse 53, Jesus says this to the crowd, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour, and the power of darkness. Other translations, this is when darkness reigns. This move to arrest Jesus, to take him to the cross. And think about turning our, our attention to the cross as they dragged him, as they beat him, as they mocked him, as they whipped him, as they put a crown of thorns upon his head. Then they led him out to Golgotha and they nailed him to a Roman cross. In Luke 23, verse 44, as Jesus is nailed to the cross, it says this, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Well, the sun's light failed. Now this is physical darkness. The sun was no longer shining for three hours. And the physical darkness is actually showing the spiritual darkness that is taking place there on the cross. The wrath of the Father poured out upon the Son. God's wrath, a punishment for our sins. Because Jesus took our sins upon himself on the cross. Sin must be dealt with. It must be punished. God is a holy and righteous God and he's just. 
And as Jesus took our sins upon himself, he also took the punishment from the Father. And his wrath was poured out upon him. And that's when darkness covers the land. As as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he, the Father, made him, the Son, be sin who knew no sin. Think of the agony of the cross. The most innocent one ever took all our sin and shame and our punishment. Truly, it was the greatest injustice. He was righteous. He lived a perfect life, yet he suffered on our behalf. It was dark. I would say it was truly the darkest time in human history, that moment on the cross. But you guess where I'm going, but God brings light in darkness. I love it. Even just continue to read on in verse 45, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And if you know anything about in the Old Testament, there was a temple made, and this is where they worshiped God, and there was a, a holy room, and only priests could enter from the tribe of Levi, and they daily they entered, and they, they had an altar of incense, and the prayers, in a sense, going before the Lord, and they had bread before the Lord, but then there was this curtain that separated the holy room from the holy of holies, and a priest only entered once a year, and that was after a bunch of animal sacrifices to deal with sin. But as Jesus died on the cross, that curtain was ripped in two because his sacrifice was accepted. A way to be made right with the Father was made again. God brings light and darkness. And so we see this as we, as we continue on. We think, I'm not going to read it all, but we know in, in Luke chapter 24, the, the women, they go and they, they bury Jesus. They put him in the grave. They saw where his body was laid. Sorry, they came with, with the ointments in order to properly do it. And what happens is they come, they run into an angel. I love it. Verse 5, and the angel says to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. We serve a risen Lord Jesus Christ. God brings light in darkness. And actually, so the darkest time in human history, God brings the greatest light. Forgiveness for our sins. Eternal life with God. How amazing that is. And even as the ascended Lord Jesus speaking to his disciples in Luke's gospel, verse 46 and 47, Jesus says this to them. It is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. It was God's plan, right? We know God planned it this way. God's always at work, and even in the darkest times, he's accomplishing his plans and his purposes. And God's like, now go and be witnesses, and this message is to go to all nations. That light needs to spread. God brings light in darkness. If God is able to bring light in the darkness time, the cross and turn into the greatest light, life eternal with God through faith in Christ, can he bring light to our dark world still? Is his light still shining? Again, I just want to paint a a picture, if you will, if there's like a white canvas with black strokes, think of the darkness of our time. 
Just big black strokes. Think of the current darkness of the time that we live in. Just think of abortion. The stats say there's like 50 million or more babies being aborted, being murdered every year. I think on average we're like 100,000 in Canada. In our own nation, think of assisted suicide in Canada. It's been going up every year, over 10,000 in 2021. Helping people kill themselves. Think of the addictions and overdoses. And I don't think these numbers truly tell the story. Since they've been keeping track, it's just been going up more and more. Almost 10,000 overdoses just from opioid use in Canada. And I didn't even kind of really see the stats on alcohol use, which is actually the highest addiction that's destroying so many people within our land. Think of the breakup of the family, of divorces, of woke ideology seeking to train us correctly, and especially our kids, on how to think, how to act. There is a darkness over our land. Think of sexual immorality, how rampant it is. No one blushes anymore. Nothing's too far. Even as that teacher in Oakville, the shop teacher who's a male who wore these huge breast implants, and there's like discussion within our society. Is that wrong? Is it not wrong? No one says, that's terrible. What is going on? These are young people. Our society turned against one another. Mask, no mask. Jab, no jab. Churches turned against one another. We know global elites working towards their goal of a one world government. Look at what the World Economic Forum, the UN, are doing, taking just steps, steps forward, taking more of our rights. The list could go on and on. I'm telling you, it is a, it's a dark time. But I'm not telling you this to leave you hopeless. I just want to paint that black backdrop because God brings light in the darkness. One more scripture. God willing, Philippians 2, 14 to 15. Paul writes this to believers. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Philippians 2, 14 to 15. That you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. This is what Paul says. Hey, yeah, it's dark. It's crooked. It's twisted. As, as believers, we're to shine. We are to shine the light of Christ. If you are in Christ, you have the light of life, Jesus Christ shining in you. Friends, where are the Boazes and Ruths of our day? watching out for the broken, for the less fortunate, standing as a godly example when there are so many bad examples to see. So just think about that, Jesus Christ, light shining in you. I just want to give you three things. Let his light shine in your soul. Let the light of Christ shine in your soul and watch the darkness flee. Right? We, we, we talked about this as Roger prayed 2 Corinthians 2.18 speaks of beholding the glory of God and being transformed to the same image from one degree of glory to another. There is something about in the word by his spirit beholding God 
And he transforms you as you do. As his light shines upon you, it's purifying. It pushes darkness out. It brings his light. It brings his goodness. So we need to let the light of Christ shine in our souls. And as the light is shining, whatever God kind of puts his light on, we need to repent and and trust again in faith. Whatever he exposes with his holy light, we need to do away with. We need to bow before him. We need to walk in obedience. Friends, I don't know if any of you ever have a good light, but there's something inhibiting the light from shining. I have an older car, right? So I have headlights that at night, I'm like, I don't think they're on. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. And so what you can do, I've done it before. Apparently, I think I need to do it again. It's not the light's problem. I remember sometimes, I'm like, is the light out? I pull it out. Oh, the, the light is fine. But there's stuff that's in the way that keeps the light from shining. And so you need to buff it and clean it. And then it's like, oh, I can actually see again. If we have the light of Christ in us, often there's, there's stuff in our lives that's keeping the light from shining. And as we behold the glory of God, as we gaze upon him, whether it's through his word and prayer and worship, as God shines light upon us, we need to repent. We need to deal with those things because it's, bro- it's blocking his light from shining. So we need to let his light shine in our souls. We need to let the light of Christ shine in our homes. Is, you, is your home full of prayers to God? Is that what is, is heard, your prayers rising up before the Lord? The words that come from your mouth when you're not praying, are they, are they pleasing to God? Is what you put in front of your eyes when you're at home, is that pleasing to God? That the light of Christ may shine there. With how, how we spend our time at home. How we open up our home to others. Just, just think as you celebrate this Christmas season, there's, there's a song, if you like it, I'm sorry, Oh Christmas Tree. <laughs> oh Christmas Tree, how lovely are your branches. So just think of that as a song, or like, Oh come, O come, Emmanuel, and free captive Israel. Where, where are we looking? Will the light of Christ shine in your home in the Christmas season? If someone who did not know Christ was able to spy on your house for a number of days, would they be able to walk away being like, these people are Christ followers? If someone was just able to watch you at home, how you act, is the light of Christ just shining in your home when no one's around? And lastly, let the light of Christ shine in your workplace, in our community. There's people who you work with People in, your, in our community, maybe we know people who need a hand, people who are less fortunate who need some help, people who, whose eyes are blind and do not know Jesus Christ. Do, we don't say happy holidays or seasons greetings. We say Merry Christmas. And what an opportunity we have within this season when people are like, hey, what are you doing on the holidays? I'm, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to celebrate that Jesus came. Like, that's why it's 2022. Because the time's marked by the time that Jesus came the first time. But what an opportunity we have still within our broken pagan society 
that we still have this, this remembrance of Christmas. And so what an open door for us to kind of to share your faith, to have a spiritual conversation. Just Merry Christmas. People, hey, what are you doing on the holidays? Whatever else you're doing, can you say, hey, I'm going to remember that Jesus, his first coming. I don't know what it looks like for you. For some, maybe you can, you can bake some cookies. <laughs> Deliver them to your neighbor. Merry Christmas. See what kind of conversation that could start. I don't know. Do you know anyone who would be upset if you came to their door with cookies? I wouldn't be. <laughs> I'm not saying bring them to me. I'm saying bring them to your neighbors, just to clarify. Well, for friends, we can see God shines his light. We see the light of Christ. We see the greatest darkness actually brought the greatest light. We live in a dark time. And I think this world actually will keep getting darker. But I know the light of Christ will shine brighter. Like, that's what I mean. This is a theme, like, right in your Bible. Let's press it. Is God not faithful? Is he not true? Friends, we hope in today and we can hope in the future because however dark it gets, God brings light in the darkness. And he's always at work. If you just bow with me, I'll close this, this word in prayer. Oh, Lord, I thank you for your scripture. I thank you for the story of Ruth and Boaz and your faithfulness there in, in a really dark time. Lord, I, I'm amazed at how and how terrible the cross was, yet it's, it's what we celebrate, the victory made there. Lord, press that truth into our hearts. I pray for each one of us, Lord. Help us to see your light. Help us to see you at work. Help us to celebrate uh, the light of the gospel evermore increasing. Lord, shine your light in our hearts by your spirit, work in us, and use us, Lord, to shine your light in this city, in our homes, wherever you would have us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.